Matthew chapter 28, or Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 says this. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said to the, to the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father, they said. They said, the first, Jesus said to them. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, in the early 1970s, there was a band by the name of Gary Gilmore. And uh, Gary Gilmore had, did some really senseless things. He went into a motel and murdered the motel operator. And uh, then he murdered a gas station attendant. And it was just completely senseless. Nobody came up with any apparent motive. He didn't know these people, didn't have any really reason to do this, but he did it. And then he was tried and convicted. And in 1976, he was the first person uh, that was on death row for the, the, in the last 10 years. It had been 10 years since the last person had been on death row. And so his lawyer is working frantically to try to get him off of death row. But surprisingly, he did something that, you know, was interesting. He insisted that he be put to death. Nearly from the moment that he was convicted, he was insistent that he wanted to be put to death. Finally, the time came. The, the lawyers gave up on you know, getting him off a death row. The time came for him to be executed. They asked him, do you have any last words? And uh, he said, you know, let's do it. And it was like, I mean, this guy was obviously dark and twisted and messed up. But there was something that was just kind of like, does he realize what he's facing here? You know, does he realize like what he's done and he's facing kind of the greatest uncertainty that human beings have, death, and he's just like, okay, let's do it. You might say it was inspirational to a man by the name of Dan Whedon. Dan Whedon was, had started this marketing firm a few years prior called Whedon and Kennedy, and uh, he said this about the event. He said, uh, what um, Gilmore said. He said, I remember when I read that, I was like, that's amazing. I mean, how in the face of that much uncertainty do you push through that? 
1987, Whedon was looking for inspiration for this athletic company that was um, thinking about kind of out, doing some more outreach. They were getting ready to do their first uh, kind of global uh, television campaign, widespread television campaign. And so he was looking for like a tagline, something to kind of wrap these um, commercials around. And he thought of what Gilmore had said, and that became the inspiration for one of the most successful taglines to ever exist, Just Do It, from a company you may have heard, Nike. And so the first commercial that he ever did uh, was this commercial right here we have on the screen. I run 17 miles every morning. People ask me how I keep my teeth from chattering in the wintertime. I leave them in my locker. It's kind of a dark history for a company that, you know, we all know and, you know, but back then when this commercial came out, Nike wasn't Nike as we know them. Uh, Reebok was like the big name in the athletic apparel and shoes. And so this, along with some celebrity endorsements like the, you know, the Air Jordans, this kind of put Nike on the map, and it became the most successful tagline in history. And, I mean, it was brilliant in the sense that it could apply to anybody's situation, um, whether you were a little kid or whether you were 80 years old. I mean, when you're 80 years old, you probably have a lot of reasons why you shouldn't run 17 miles uh, per day. I mean, there's probably a lot of excuses that might come to your mind like the cold, your teeth chattering in the cold, the aches, the pains. There's so many different things that you could come up with why you shouldn't run 17 miles a day, but this tagline kind of cut through that in the athletic industry. It's like, just do it. Don't think about why you can't do it. Just find a way to do it. And I think part of the reason it was successful was because, I mean, that's a big obstacle when it comes to fitness and uh, exercise and eating well, there's a lot of excuses that we have. Um, there was a study that was done by the Global Wellness Institute, which is a nonprofit focused on preventative health and wellness, and they found that in 2018, uh, the Americans spent $264.6 billion on physical activity, far more than any other nation. The United States led the world in spending on every single category, including fitness classes, $37 billion, Sports and recreation, $58 billion. Apparel and footwear, $117 billion. Equipment and supplies, $37.5 billion. Mindful movement like yoga, $10 billion. And related technology like Fitbits and whatnot, $8.1 billion. And yet, according to the academic journal The Lancet, for all this spending, Americans rank 143rd globally for actual participation in physical activity. More than 40% of Americans fail to meet the global standard of 150 minutes per week of moderate physical activity like walking or gardening or 75 minutes per week of intense physical activity like running or strength training. See, we know what's healthy. We know what's right. Like, we know what we should be eating. Like, um, but we just don't want to do it. Like, for me and for most people, like, would you rather have, like, a bowl of cherries or a cherry pie? I, most of us would choose the cherry pie. I mean, there's some outliers, like my brother, uh, who's never struggled with his weight. He's always been healthy. He would, like, prefer that bowl of cherries. And I'm like, oh, I hate you. 
I mean, but most of us, you know, we prefer that pie. I mean, we, and we know like that it's that it's healthier to eat cherries or fruits. I mean, it's not that simple. It's not that you know hard to discern what's healthy and what's not. But we don't want to do it. We have excuses why we shouldn't do it. Like you know, it's like oh, like uh, you know, I'll just eat this now and I'll be healthy tomorrow. How many times have I said that? I say that like every day. <laughs> you know, and you know, it comes to like exercise as well. I mean, exercise. It's simple. It's just moving. There's a lot of different ways that we can do it in. There's, I mean, there's thousands of different ways. But unless we find something that's really, you know, exciting to us that we enjoy doing, most of us don't want to just exercise for exercise's sake. Um, and so we come up with excuses like why we can't do it. Um, and oftentimes the excuse is like we don't have the tools that we need to do it. Like the, it's called the toolbox fallacy. And it's like, oh, if I joined a gym, then, then I would be able to be healthy and exercise. Or if I, I, I've always thought this, like if I had a Peloton and it was like right in my living room and I could like watch TV, then I would be healthy and exercise all the time. But the reality is, I mean, we could have all of those things. It might help us exercise maybe a little, little bit more than usual. But really those are things that are just excuses. I mean, it probably get back to a baseline. That's why people join gyms and like 40% or, or so people that join gyms don't actually use their membership. Or you go to garage sales and you see like treadmills and ellipticals and all those things for sale. Uh, because it's really not about the tools, right? I mean, we, th we think it is, but even if we have the right tools, if we don't really want to exercise, we're going to find a reason not to exercise. Or if we, you know, do want to exercise, even if we don't have those tools, we can find a way to exercise. And so I think the reason this tagline was so successful, because it kind of cut through all those excuses, and just in that athletic sphere, it was just this encouragement, like, just do it. Don't think about it. Don't make up excuses. Just whatever your goal is, whether you're 80 years old and want to run 17 miles per day, or whether you're, you know, however many miles you want to walk, whatever, just do it. Don't make excuses. And I think that's the message that Jesus is communicating to these religious leaders in this passage. Jesus tells first the parable of two sons. Uh, the father calls the first son and asks him to go work in the vineyard. And he says, I won't go. I will not go. I don't want to go. And yet then he goes and he works in the vineyard. The second son uh, is told the same thing and he responds, I go, sir. Literally, I go, Lord or Master which is kind of interesting given that it's his father and he's calling him Lord, Master. But then he says those things, but then he doesn't go. And then Jesus asks him, asks the religious leader, so which of them did the will of the Father? And of course, it's the one that said that they weren't, but he actually went and did it. It's not the one who said that he was going to, but then didn't actually do it. And Jesus goes on to say, that when John the Baptist came, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they were responding to the message. They were repenting. But then the religious leaders, they were just going about their business. They were just felt like they didn't need any repentance. And imagine how insulting this would have been to the religious leaders who had spent so much of their life uh, trying to achieve, you know, spiritual things, and they knew the, the God's word, they knew the Torah so well, and they had all these rituals and yet Jesus says, like, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they understand it better than you do. Because they repent, they turned to me. These 
religious leaders, they claimed to do the will of God. They toyed around with doing the will of God. They said they were doing the will of God. When it came down to it, they didn't actually do what God said. The last couple of weeks, we talked about this idea of the temple and about how there was so much activity going on in the temple. And we talked about these religious rituals that were not changing people's hearts. And we talked about the idea that, you know, it, the, the temple was to be a house of prayer where people connect with God. But this passage is a reminder that not only is it to be a contemplative place, but also a place that changes those who enter into it. That when we enter into a relationship with God, it's a relationship that's meant to change us. And you see kind of these two things that, you know, of course our salvation is not based upon our performance. It's based upon the work of Christ. And we receive that free gift of salvation. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says that we're justified by grace through faith, not uh, by the works of the law. So we're not justified by the good things that we do. We're, we're not justified or, or made righteous because, you know, we do these religious rituals. And so Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith. But then James, on the other hand, says that we're saved by works, or, or that we're justified by works, not saved by works, but justified by works. And, and so people will look at these two things, and they're like, okay, they're, they're conflictory. You know, even people like Martin Luther, you know, so many things he added to the history of the church. He didn't like the book of James. He thought that the book of James was opposed to Paul. You know, even going so far as to, like, suggest, like, let's get rid of James. But both are kind of two sides of the same coin. You know, when we have a relationship with Christ, when we know him, it's a relationship that changes us. It produces work. It produces fruit, as, as Jesus speaks of in these passages. And so if there, there's two kind of equal and opposite errors. If we, you know, have faith but no works, it's deadly. But also if we have works but no faith, no relationship, that's deadly as well. And so there are two sides of the same coin. When we enter into a relationship with someone, it changes us. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, think about, you know, say a couple are, are going to get married, and they, they go to the wedding ceremony, and they say, I do. And, and then from there, they go and they live in different cities. They keep separate finances. They talk maybe once every couple of weeks. Every couple of months, they get together and go out to eat, go to a movie, I mean, in what sense would you say they're married? I mean, they said, I do, but they're not really married. I mean, marriage is about, you know, lives commingling. And when you enter into a marriage relationship, it, it changes you. It means that you're not living separately anymore. It means that you're not pursuing other people anymore. It means that your lives commingle, that you're dreaming together, that you're doing life together. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. If, if we have a faith relationship with God... It's not a static relationship. It's going to change us. It's going to transform us. Romans 2, 17 to 14, Paul puts it this way. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. 
religious people who say don't commit adultery, but commit adultery. Religious people who say don't have anything to do with idols, but then are, you know, kind of playing around with idols. People who say, Lord, Lord, as Jesus says, but don't do what Jesus actually says. And I think there's a serious warning to us in this passage that we're not just to be hearers, not just to be discussers of biblical things, but doers as well. That we need to be heeding the voice of God in our lives. And as Christians, we do a lot of hearing, we do a lot of talking as we we come together as a community of faith, and those things can be helpful things, but they can't be the only things. If God isn't changing our hearts, there's a problem. Sometimes we talk about this idea that a relationship with God, it's vital and important, and it's important to spend time with God, but then we go about our busy lives and busy days, and we don't actually spend time with Or we talk about the idea of purity and we say amen and then we leave and we go and view pornography. Or we talk about this idea of unity and how we're to build one another up and then we start talking bad about our neighbor. We talk about this idea that God owes a cattle on a thousand hills and how he's called us to be generous and yet we aren't. We don't give. We don't share with those around us. I'd wager to say that each and every one of us have areas in our life where God is like, just do it. Just do it. Like where we know what we should be doing, but we have all of these excuses or all these reasons that we put up why we're not being faithful. And we're like, okay, well, maybe um, after I get more time, after things settle down, then I'll start making time for God. Uh, or, you know, I'm going to view pornography just this one last time and then I'll be done. Or, or, you know, this person is really doing these terrible things and, you know, I know it's, I shouldn't be talking bad about them, but I, I just got to talk to somebody about this. I just got to, you know, make this person look bad. They really deserve it. Or, you know, once money isn't so tight, then I'll start being generous. And I feel like in those situations, God's like, just do it. Because the reality is, If we're not willing to do it now, when our circumstances change, we're probably not going to be willing to do it then either. Uh, Just like, you know, exercising. Just because you have exercise equipment doesn't mean that you're going to exercise. And just because our circumstances might change doesn't mean our hearts changed. And so I believe that there's areas in all of our life where the Spirit of God is saying to us today, just do it. Stop the excuses. Stop saying tomorrow. Stop saying the next day. Stop putting conditions on when you're going to do it. Just do it now. And then Jesus tells another parable. It's kind of a warning for us if we don't listen to God, if we fail to do it when he he speaks. It's it's another parable about a vineyard. The master of the vineyard plants uh, plants this vineyard. It would take a couple years for it to actually produce a harvest. But when it comes time for the harvest to, to be uh, harvested, um, he sends, sends servants to the vineyard. And so the first servants that come, they're beaten, they're stoned, they're put to death. And then the master does something interesting. He just sends more. You think like, okay, I've lost three servants. I'm going to bring the artillery. I'm going to bring soldiers. I'm going to take this back. But he doesn't. He sends more servants. And the result is the same. And then he does something that would seem almost foolish. He sends in his own son, thinking, they'll listen to my son. I mean, it's crazy because he should have been sending the soldiers to take possession of that again. 
But he doesn't. He sends his son, and the result is the same for the son as well. The son is also put to death. And, of course, this is a picture of Israel's history. Uh, God planted this vineyard in Israel, and um, it was supposed to be a place of blessing where through Israel, God's blessing would come to the nations. And oftentimes they were led to sin, and God would bring these prophets to them who said, you know, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, give up these idols that you're following. And, and by and large, with some exceptions, by and large, they rejected the prophets, sometimes even being violent with the prophets, persecuting the prophets because of the message that they said. And then finally, Jesus comes, and they do the same to him. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says this. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This is just prior to Jesus entering into Jerusalem as he, the son, is going to be brutalized by the religious establishment. And then Jesus' question to the religious leaders is, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders respond and they say, he will put those wretches to, his to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus goes on to quote from Psalm 118 about uh, the cornerstone and, and speaking about how the one who is rejected will become the cornerstone. And what's interesting is in the context of Psalm 118, it's speaking of Israel's enemies. But here, it's Jesus, the one who is rejected by Israel, is going to become the chief cornerstone. And so Jesus is going to build this new temple, this new people, so to speak. He's going to be the cornerstone, the, the supporting wall for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jews and Gentiles, uh, together. And so... The people of God are, so the people of Israel, the religious establishment are going to be done away with in that sense, and Jesus is going to be the capstone, the centerpiece of the church. And so, in one token, this passage is very specific. It's very contextual in that Jesus is speaking to a very specific group of people. He's speaking to these religious leaders. And so there's parts of it that don't necessarily apply to us as New Testament believers or even to the disciples in the same way. But I think there's some warnings here. I think there's some warnings that sometimes we can get to a place in our lives where maybe we say no to the Spirit of God so many times that we don't hear Him anymore. See, as we look at this passage and we look at Israel's leaders and really Israel in general throughout their history, their biggest problem was not their sin. I mean, their sin was a problem. But the biggest problem that Jesus highlights here is not the fact that they were sinning. It's the fact that they refused to repent. That was the problem. I mean, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they got it. Yes, they were doing things that were wrong, but John the Baptist came, a preacher of righteousness, and they repented, they turned. And the problem Jesus highlights is that I sent you prophets. I sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. And instead of repenting, instead of turning, you were just hardened in your ways. Because if we're not sensitive to the Spirit of God, if, if we're not listening to His voice when He says, just do it, sometimes we get to a place in our lives where it doesn't matter what's happening. 
It's just going to harden us. It doesn't matter what's being spoken to us. It doesn't matter what we're reading in God's word. We're just going to be kind of hardened into our position. When uh, me and my wife first got married, um, there were some adjustments about, you know, getting married. And uh, one adjustment was uh, my wife, I'll say, she was a snoozer. And when I'm saying that, I'm not saying she slept more than me. I actually need more sleep than she does. But she liked to use the snooze button. And so when she would, you know, set an alarm, she, you know, there would be expectation that, you know, she'd maybe hit the few snooze button a few times and then get up. With me, it was different. And with me, when I set an alarm, as soon as the alarm went off, I was like, I was up, I was ready to go. And so we got married and, you know, she would set an alarm and she would set the alarm for much earlier than, you know, she would actually have to get up. And so she'd set the alarm and then it would go off. And then she would hit the snooze, and she would be sound asleep, and then I would be up, ready to go. And I'm like, thanks for getting me up. And so this went on for a while with a little frustration. And then I got to a point where I'm like, okay, the alarm's going off. I'm going to try to go back to sleep. And the more time went on, the less and less it bothered me. And it got to a point where I didn't even hear the alarm anymore. I, I really, I, I just slept right through it. I didn't didn't hear that sound anymore. And it got to a point where I didn't even have a choice any longer whether I was going to get up or not. Like, I just didn't hear it. And I think the same thing can happen to us if we keep saying no to God, if the alarm bells keep going off and we just keep hitting the new snooze button saying, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to listen. I mean, there comes a point where we just don't even hear it anymore. That's a really dangerous place to be spiritually. And for some of us, if, you know, if that's the case, it's evidence that we don't really know Jesus, that we don't have a relationship with him. Uh, there was a story that was told uh, by a man by the name of Lloyd Stephen, uh, Stephen in the Christian century, and it, it was a story about, the king, uh, about King Frederick II, um, king of Prussia. And so he went to this prison, and as he was going through this prison, all of this soldier or all the prisoners are just screaming and they're saying how they're innocent and if you've ever been to a prison this is kind of a common thing you know nobody ever did anything in prison you know or if they did something it was like not really that serious but they're saying like oh I'm, I'm innocent I didn't do anything wrong and they're just you know trying to get the king's attention and then there was this one man who's kind of sitting in the corner not really a part of the commotion is, at all and the king asks him what he was there for, and he says, armed robbery, your honor. The king asked, were you guilty? He says, yes, sir. He said, I entirely deserve my punishment. The king then gave an order to the guard. He says, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. <laughs> I think when it comes to our spiritual life, I think sometimes we think like it's sin or not sin. And of course, we should avoid sin as much as possible. But the reality is the fact that we are sinners by nature, we're probably going to, we will find ourselves sinning. And as we look at the difference between believers and unbelievers, oftentimes, you know, we think, okay, like an, an unbeliever sins. A believer, like, sins less. And really, that's the, the wrong distinction. You know, 
you think about First John, and he says that you know anyone who uh, makes a practice of sinning has neither seen him nor known him, and and that kind of highlights, I think, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever makes a practice of sinning. A believer makes a practice of repenting. That, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer makes a practice of repenting. You know, we never get there to the place that we're sinless until we get to heaven. But believers, we repent. God speaks to us. He says, okay, you've been making these excuses all this time. You just need to change. And we're like, okay, I'm going to change. And so out of that relationship that we have with God, we repent. Martin Luther's first thesis was this. When our Lord Jesus said repent, he intended that the entire lives of believers should be repentance. And so that's a good measure of our spirituality. That's a good measure of how far we've gotten in our spiritual life. Of course, we're not to be living in sin. We're not to be practicing sin. We're to be repenting, making that practice of repentance. And so that's a good measure of our spirituality. Are we listening when God speaks? Because sometimes we can look at God's word and we're like, you know, we see all this encouragement and all these things that build us up. And, and, and there's things in Scripture that are supposed to encourage us and build us up. But there's other things that are supposed to challenge us. There's other things that are supposed to, like, have a, you know, perform a mirror to our heart that's like, okay, look at what this says. Look at what God has called you to and look at who you are. And then God says, repent today. Not tomorrow, not after you figure these things out. Repent today. And for those of us who are believers, we make that our practice. And you know, even as believers, sometimes you know, maybe there's areas of our life that we're like holding on to, where God says, just do it, and we don't. And there's a warning in this passage as well. I mean, if you don't know Christ, I mean, the warning is you know, eternally being separated from him. But even if you do know Christ... If we hold on to these things, if we don't repent, uh, there's a warning that we can lose our influence. I mean, that's part of the, the, the judgment here that these religious leaders are going to lose their place of authority. And if we're not people who repent, if we're not people who turn and listen to the voice of God, then God's going to have a harder time using us for his glory. And maybe he's going to use others instead of us. His plan will go forward, but he'll use others. And so our goal should be a willing repentance, that when God speaks, we listen. When God speaks, we act. When God says, just do it, we say, okay, I'm ready. The great spiritual writer Andrew Murray, in closing, said this. He put it this way, the true pupil, say, of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission. And practicing his scales or mixing the colors. In the slow and patient study of the elements of his art, he knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey it. It is this wholehearted surrender to his guidance, this implicit submission to his authority which Christ asks. We come to him asking him to teach us the lost art of obeying God as he did. The only way of learning to do a thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to him and to make the doing of his will the one desire and delight of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth and died on the cross for us. We thank you that you sent us 
prophets, but also that we, you sent your son to die on the cross that we might have life. Lord, we thank you that there's nothing that we can do to earn your salvation. Lord, we thank you that it's a free gift that we receive by putting our faith and trust in you. Lord, help us to not be people simply who hear and listen, but people who do as well. That out of that relationship that we have with you, we would be people of repentance, Lord. Help us not to hold on to sin in our heart. We would not harbor iniquity in our heart. Lord, I pray that when you speak, we, li- we would listen. That we wouldn't make excuses. We wouldn't postpone obedience to you, but when you speak, we would walk forward in obedience. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that you'd use us for your glory. In Christ's name I pray.